Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, costume designer Nat Turner, joins us to talk about their work on the Tetris movie. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode, so sit back and relax as we jump into the conversation with Nat. Hi, Nat. Thanks for joining me today. No problem. I think we finally got through that little intro bit of me just tripping over the, the uh, pronunciation of your name. Uh, so apologies for that. That's all good. That's all good. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about Tetris, which came out last week on Apple TV+. Plus. I really enjoyed it. I didn't know that there was so much sort of so much to it to just getting the rights to a video game and the story behind it, which is crazy to think as well now when you think about Tetris as a game and just how popular it is. And I wouldn't be surprised if people still play it, even the kids at school, if they'll have those websites that are unblocked to play during lessons rather than <laughs> listen to the teacher. I'm pr- pretty certain we did that as well. I'll have to ask my daughter about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she, she won't tell me the truth too, no doubt. Anyway, so... Yeah, exactly. Hopefully I haven't just like grasped her up by mistake. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm making notes. (laughs) So how have you found the whole reception to the to the film? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, um, you know, I was was saying to you earlier, it's kind of like it's weird because it's such a long time ago now that you can never you can never really look. I don't think anyway, you can really look at work that you've done sort of objectively it's really complicated to sort of view it in the same way that other people view it because you're just kind of like oh remember that costume was a real pain or that was that day when it didn't stop raining or all that sort of all those sorts of memories come up rather than I'm really engrossed in this film and I can't you know and I can't um can't stop thinking about what's happening with the characters I'm constantly sort of analyzing all the other information that's around it rather than what they're actually talking about (laughs) i sort of try to you know sometimes i watch like films with the sound down as well just to try and i don't know to sort of decode what everybody else's work that they've put in you know because obviously the story is the most important part but there's a whole lot of other information that the other departments are trying to sort of impart through their their own crafts but yeah i think the the reception's been pretty good i think generally yeah i mean lots of um you know, most of the people that I know and, you know, people who worked in my department on the film, they were really, really happy with it. They thought it was, um, you know, sort of zipped along and was pretty, pretty awesome and stuff. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy. I can only sort of be happy with how other people view it, if you see what I mean, rather than how I view it. That's the burden, I suppose, of being an HOD because you're, you're too close to it. I think, yeah, you're right in terms of you will sit, you basically analyse all of it but then on top of that if because you're constantly looking at all your designs and whatnot in the sh- in the film but then i guess if you have somebody i guess off the street that said oh i saw tetris oh my gosh did you see this outfit did you see that costume then i guess that sort of unburdens you as well and i guess kind of like builds you up a bit more as well to be like yeah we made that we made it look good yeah i mean it, it's nice when people <laughs> say that that you know your work's good or whatever but 
to some degree with me anyway I don't know if other people feel this way but I kind of don't really ever believe anyone I don't know if it's like if that's part of like imposter syndrome or something but I'm always kind of like well they're just saying that or it's always about whether it's good enough for me if you know what I mean rather than if it's good enough for for anybody else and and also I'm also thinking about like a lot of my contemporaries and other costume designers that I know and I'm sort of more concerned about how they see it really than than anybody else but yeah it's always nice for people to you know to say that they thought it was good or whatever that's so I'll, I'll always take that it's very it's very kind of people to say things like that I always feel like it's nothing's really good enough and I suppose that's why you keep that's why you keep doing it because it can be quite a painful process sometimes and it can be quite not traumatic but it can be um <clears throat> you know in, impacts on your life a lot this this industry to give up what you have to give up with your family life or whatever you have to put everything into it and and that has a cost to your sort of family life and keep on doing more films because you think well this time I'll really nail it but then when you get to the end of that film you still are kind of like well that bit kind of wasn't how I thought it would turn out or this bit wasn't this bit was great but that bit wasn't so great you know well maybe the, the next one that will be the one that's perfect you know because you're always sort of striving for that, but you're never going to really, you're never really going to arrive there. I don't think. Maybe you will. Maybe that's when you get an Oscar. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find. Hopefully, we'll find out. We'll uh, we'll bookmark this for next year. <laughs> so I guess we could always go back. When did? How did the project come about? And what was it that wanted you to take the challenge on? This whole film was shot during the first major lockdown well just after it just lifted actually so i've been working on this film with reggie yates called pirates which was great and re i really loved the experience and so we'd we'd got shut down in like march when everything shut down and you know we had that summer where nobody did anything and nobody went to work and it was so we didn't do anything for that whole summer and then i came back to finish reggie's film uh in september and we were like one of the first films to come back and we only had like, I think we only had like two weeks left to shoot, but it was really, really complicated because there was no, you know, the whole way in which we dealt with the coronavirus with, within films was not like a thing yet. Like nobody had any clue how to deal with it, really. I think Jurassic World was the only film that had gone back apart from us. So we were sort of, we just, we were just literally got through that. And I was like, oh, well, there probably won't be any work for ages because it didn't really seem like anything was really continuing because obviously the pandemic was in full swing and everybody was really concerned you know so but then but then I got uh, my agent phoned me and said oh John S. Baird has phoned about this film about Tetris and I'd worked with John previously on um, Babylon which was this um, TV series that Danny Boyle been sort of executive producer on and stuff and it was it had been quite a while ago so I was kind of quite surprised and I was really you know really happy that that John had remembered me to be fair and I was a bit like say to my agent I was like have they got the right are you sure they asked for me and then not not somebody else because I'm not it seems a bit a bit weird to sort of out of the blue that it's uh, apart from obviously working with John before and she was like no 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 they do they want to John wants to zoom you um so we so we did and we still got on and he wanted me to do it and I was over the moon obviously like everybody I was a bit like 
so why how how are you making a film about tetris i mean how does that work what what do you mean it's a film about tetris i don't understand so he sort of gave me gave me the whole pitch and stuff and obviously told, uh, sent me a script and noah pink who wrote the script you know i thought he'd written such a, a great script because it sort of it, it had made a lot of quite complicated legal wrangles like quite un- quite easy to understand like I suppose in the same way that the big short did and stuff that sort of communicates these quite quite dry subjects I suppose in a way in which you're kind of interested in and it's it's intriguing and then obviously it's got lots of, it, it, it played out I suppose the, the script I thought was amazing and it sort of played out like a something that kind of more like a chase movie almost it was you know because they're because he's constantly going from you know going to japan and then going to america and then to moscow and he's sort of zipping across the world all over the place and it it sort of played out like more like like that kind of thing to me and i was i just thought it was really well written and and then uh, you know and then i sort of started reading around it and uh, there's a book by dan ackerman called the tetris effect which sort of gives you the full truth as it were about what went on and you know a lot of a lot in of the stuff in the script is absolutely true and there's and there's some some things that aren't in the film that were equally you know kind of shocking and start and, and interesting but you know you can't there's only so much you can put into one film I suppose and but it's I thoroughly thoroughly recommend that book to to anyone who um thought the film was interesting because the book, you know, goes in even more detail, which is good for me. I mean, I'm I'm always looking for little hooks and other bits to hook on to hook character sort of things onto. And so I was hoping that there might be more information about Hank in there and and um Alexi and stuff and just little bits and pieces that you can pick up through all the different bits of research, I suppose. But yeah, that's that's how it came to me. Basically, that you know, John wanted me to do it, and I was, you know, like I said, I'm really super happy to work with him because he'd been really lovely to work with when I'd worked with him previously, and he was on this as well, which was which was great. I think you're right in terms of the film plays like a political thriller in terms of you're you're in that chase, and they only have a certain sort of because they they put a week they put it later on in the film. Uh, Mirasoft have a week to pay that one million, and then that creates a really good tension as like a ticking yeah. time bomb of like, oh my gosh, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? And then there's so much to it as well in terms of like it's not just about Tetris, but also all these other firms and these people involved in it, and the sort of lack of a better term backstabbing that happens just yeah. to, just to keep hold of that power. Yeah, I mean that that the whole sort of business world is kind of mind blowing to me and the, the way in which people do stab each other in the back. And because, you know, we work in the, the beautiful utopia that is film <laughs> and it doesn't, in my experience anyway, it doesn't really, doesn't really come out that way. You know, we work in teams and it's all about, you know, trying to get, make the best thing possible between all of us. Whereas it seems like a lot of business business related uh, things seem to be like well i'm out for myself and um you know what can i make and what can i get so but yeah which is why i love succession so much as well because that's the same kind of thing i just can't quite get my head around how awful those people are because i don't know anybody like that you know there's some pretty awful characters in tetris as well you know 
especially as well that they're based on real life people and real life events where you just think, wow, I can't believe something that sort of happened and no one. Yeah, really... well, I, you know, I, I think someone someone should really make like a sort of some kind of either TV show or film or something about Robert Maxwell's life because his his life was is really crazy. You know, so I sort of read around him a little bit and listened to some podcasts about his life. And it's just, you know, it's not just the stuff in his later life. It's, there's stuff in his in his earlier life, which is you're just kind of like, what? And, you know, that, he, he came from where? And, you know, there's all this spy stuff in his background and stuff as well. So it's he's he's a really interesting character as well, which none of that, none of that stuff really gets touched on, particularly in this film. But everybody knows what a kind of ogre, I suppose, Robert Maxwell was and obviously you know stealing the pensions and all the rest of it he's quite he's quite the character he is quite the character yeah there's 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 so much about him as well just like even as you said the spy stuff but just yeah even that feels like a work of fiction when you read Mm. the sort of things that 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 he has done and what he was doing absolutely Uh, because this is a period film and yeah. with a film like this, like, where do you begin with your research? And because you just don't jump in time periods, you also don't jump a lot uh, between different cultures. So you have Russia during the Soviet Union time. You have uh, America in that sort of 80s, 80s groove. And then you also have uh, Japan as well. I mean, yeah, there, there was a there was a lot to research. <laughs> there was a lot to research. And obviously there's all the, the whole military aspect as well, because that's the thing all on its own, which is like nobody wants to get military stuff wrong because there's a million military anoraks on the internet who will go, the wrong epaulette on this person or whatever, or that, that colour is wrong, not is incorrect for the KGB, for the Russian stuff. I watched sort of as much Russian TV as I could on YouTube, because there's quite a lot of weirdly Russian t- 1980s Russian TV on YouTube. And there's also a film called Little Vera that I watched as well, which is a sort of, it was quite a fated Russian film of that around that time, sort of 1980s. And I, there's a lot of, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of books, lots and lots of books. And I've done quite a lot of 1980s projects in the past. Um, so I've built up a fair bit of uh, 1980s photography research over the years like you know like Wonder Woman 1984 that Lindy Hemming designed I was like assistant designer on that as well so you know that was reasonably fairly recent when we were doing the film anyway so there was quite there was a little bit of crossover there as well because we had a bit of a little bit of Russian Soviet military in in that but I, I specifically with the military stuff we had to I had to buy a few military books to make sure but also the military stuff is quite complicated because a lot of the, especially with the KGB the KGB stuff because a lot of these books kind of say yes and they they wore this style of uniform and the color of their epaulets was blue and the, da 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 and then at, right at the end of the sentence they go they they say yes and all this is definite and then they go except maybe it maybe it wasn't because there's was not that much information because it was the Soviet Union <laughs> at the time and so everything was very secret so you kind of of going through all of that stuff and Sean, my supervisor as well, she um, likes likes a bit of military as well. So we were sort of um, talking a lot about that. And we've got various, there's various different uh, military 
not forces, I can't think what the word is now, branches in the films. So there's like communication. So when you see the communications room, they all have like black epaulettes and stuff because that's that's what the communication colour is. And the KGB have got this sort of bright blue colour, which we see on in regimental, uh, what are they called? Uh, regimental presidential guard, I think it was, yeah. So they're all actually KGB. So that's this bright blue colour. And we see that also on the guy who's, in um Gorbachev's chamber and then the general army is red so there's a lot of that when we're doing you know the street scene stuff and then there's border guards as well so that's green I don't know why I started talking about military so much but sorry about that you were talking about research Um, and yeah so there's that was kind of like the Russian side of it and then with the American stuff I mean that's obviously reasonably easy to sort of to get into because I've got a fair bit of magazines so with with Taron with um with Hank's stuff you know we were looking at kind of like Imar Armani of the period and sort of looking at sort of Vogue Hom type research for him to make him to make his silhouette significantly different from the rest of them because obviously there's a lot of guys wearing suits in this so there's quite a lot of suit differentiation which I suppose the sort of casual viewer wouldn't necessarily pick up but there's that the, that sort of Italian large-shouldered American kind of Italian American, I suppose. Anyway, sort of look to to Hank's silhouette and also all of his all of his suits, you know, because he's coming from Tokyo. So some of his suits actually are Armani, but um, the main one that he wears, which is a single-breasted one, we made because we need duplicates of it for you know action and stuff like that and stunt doubles. And actually, we made the um, we made a sports jacket for him as well. But um, all of his, the all of the materials, all the cloths of his suits needed to be lightweight because you know he's coming from Tokyo, which generally is a warmer place. And I just wanted him to look ill prepared, I suppose, to be going into the Soviet <laughs> Union in in winter. So like obviously everybody else is bundled up with wool and lots of layers and stuff, and he's sort of arriving there with just his suit because he's he's so possessed you know on his mission to to get this game and then obviously the second time he comes back he's got an overcoat because he learned from the first time that he went there that that was a really stupid thing to go with no coat to to moscow when he couldn't buy a coat because again there's the soviet union was what it was it was it was hard to get sort of normal normal day-to-day things that you'd imagine you could get anywhere just go and buy a coat it's like well what if there's there wouldn't be any what if there are no winter coats left because everybody bought them all on all these sort of considerations and also, yeah, so getting back to your question about the research, there was also this really great, for the CES trade show, there was this amazing YouTube video that some guy had taken on his camcorder of the actual, the exact, like, 1988 CES trade show. And so I found that. And that was invaluable as well, really, because it was interesting to see all the different types of people. So you don't really see it so much in the film, but we had like, you know, each stall had a different representative and we had little mascots and, you know, sort of some guys in the arcade. So they all had sort of different branded. So some of them had, kind of, I can't even, it wasn't Activision, Activision, because obviously we weren't allowed to use stuff like that, but like it was sort of Activision-esque t-shirts and stuff in the, uh, in the arcade part and some sort of show girls, which you do see. And actually they got that eight bit, eight-bit treatment so that was quite quite nice because they were quite happy with those costumes they look quite funny but yeah this uh the ces trade show camcorder footage was absolutely hilarious because 
it's obviously this like single kind of it must be this single geeky guy who'd gone round and he was kind of like zooming in on all of the new products and stuff and you know you could although he didn't really he didn't really sort of focus on the nintendo stand too much which was which was annoying because i really wanted to have a look at that one but he was sort of looking at the there's all kinds of like everything there like you know like in the film where the you've got the sort of ferrari testarossa or whatever it is in the middle of it and there was like music stands and everything and he'd be zooming in on these guitars and stuff and then he was but what was more disturbing was that you'd always zoom in on the sort of these women who were, were there to sort of obviously tempt the people into the stalls and he'd like be zooming in on their bums and stuff and you'd be like this is a really inappropriate video to put on youtube particularly there was lots of good research in it aside from him perving out over women's bums i, I i'm kind of curious to know that like, if like this guy's done this this like camcorder footage i wonder if he ever thought that in 20 years, 30 years time, that somebody would take it, upload it, and just like this was supposed to be his own sort of thing. And uh, it was just like his, some random person has like purchased it from a thrift shop or a charity shop and have just been like, oh, and they either haven't gone through all of it or just uploaded it and then just for the sake of just being like look how it was back in those times. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a re- it's really eye opening, like I said, because I didn't even. I hadn't even considered that sort of uh, that angle of because you know I was kind of I suppose from some of the photos that I'd seen I was aware that the that the, there were women you know on the fronts of the stands and stuff like that to sort of show people and I suppose that was kind of that used to be anyway one of those things that always happened especially like at car shows and stuff they'd always have like women at car shows and stuff so wouldn't they like scantily clad but I never really sort of thought of it at a sort of computer. <laughs> computer trade show it it was it was very much there and i wouldn't have and we did put some of those those sort of women characters into the trade show which i wouldn't have done if i hadn't seen that video because i just didn't it didn't even occur to me to be honest i think as well just going back to your point about the military outfits in terms of just how the kgb were very were basically a very shadowy government should we say with how they operated, but also the idea of the uniforms, because it was a sort of loose lips, shrink, sink ship sort of society where somebody, if you said something to your neighbour, that they would might tell the government, or you might be talking to the wrong, you know, you might voice a uh, disgruntlement that you have with the government with someone, and then they could, you know, you're arrested and sent away to Gulag for 20 years. What I think is quite interesting in when you're saying about your research is the secrecy still surrounding what they are wearing and what they're having even though communism and kgb collapsed over 30 years ago and how we still don't have that information about how different uh sectors what they wore and how they sort of operated as well yeah yeah it's pretty bad i mean like my my wife also i didn't mention this as well previously in terms of my research my wife is slovakian which obviously isn't russian but um was when she was growing up, she grew up under a kind of Soviet authority, I guess, because it was, you know, they were part of the Soviet Union at that before the Velvet Revolution and stuff. And she actually, when you were, you, you know, you were saying about, you know, people, your neighbours listening into you and stuff, which is, a, which is in Tetris the film as well. She, you know, she personally, her dad uh, was, uh, he used to do a lot of um, potholing and he discovered a lot of caves and stuff in Slovakia and he went traveling around to Italy and stuff to go potholing with his these other friends that he'd made and because he was sort of he was known to have friends outside of um, Slovakia 
they they were they were under surveillance for a time and they cat my cat my wife she she knows that you know they were caught we were recording all of their conversations through the walls and all this stuff and that was literally just for a guy who wanted to go potholing in Italy <laughs> let alone anything more serious you know so I think it was definitely a quite a quite a strange time to live through my mum grew up uh, behind the iron curtain as well and then when her dad died she was talk- she was on the phone in England to Poland to her mum and they were discussing what to do with the funeral and during um, I'll need to just double check this when I see her later. But apparently the person listening to their call actually suggested to them what to do. And it's like, really? <laughs> wow. I'll need to double check that. <laughs> I, I will, I'll, I'll let you know. But yeah, you kind of think like, wow, that's how crazy that sort of time was and how yeah. people were focusing on all of those sort of aspects around then. But I, but also to go to your point about the clothing outside of the USSR. So, for example, like Hank's outfits, he he's you create such a design that he sticks out like a sore thumb. So there's moments when he'll go. He, I think it was when he goes to Alexi's apartment and they go out. He's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just it's quite a vibrant uh, yellow as well from memory. And even that's like it's just quite. A funny image to see because everybody's in sort of grey, all wrapped up, and then you just see this sort of effectively outsider coming in, being like, you know, all bubbly and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I really, I did, you know, we haven't really sort of gone into the sort of uh, colour schemes and stuff and everything yet, but yeah, I really wanted him to stick out, specifically in Russia. I mean, I would have actually made him stick out slightly more. I don't think John wanted him to be fine line i suppose between sticking out and looking foolish i suppose and i think it's very clear that they didn't want him to ever appear foolish although i did manage to get the cowboy boots in because i thought that would be kind of funny when he when he loses his trousers and he has to walk back into the hotel with just his with with his bare legs and his tube socks and his cowboy boots on i just thought that was a funny image and that sort of that that somehow kind of got through the whole process and the cowboy boots sort of remained from the very first conversation that i'd had with john and taryn at the same time it's funny because it's like a lot of the time i want things to be to look correct to period but i also don't necessarily want things to look i don't i don't want him to look too polished or too perfect I want him to look like a man who's really trying to look cool, but he's not really cool because I think the real Hank was definitely like that. I think in later life, you, you look at you look at the real Hank now and you're like, wow, he's such a cool kind of surfer guy and all this stuff. And he does actually have all of that in his um, in his past, like before he went to Tokyo and stuff, he he lived in Hawaii and he was a bit of a he was a bit of this sort of he was a bit of a dropout is his real kind of story. He was like incredibly he seemed to be incredibly intelligent and he'd do all, all these courses. But then he, when he'd get to the end of the computing course or whatever, and they'd say, they'd be like, right, so you need to do this test to, you know, get your final grade. And he'd be like, no, I don't need to do that. I've learned what I need to do now and I'll, I'll see you later. And he, he, there's, I can't think which, which one it was, but I think it was when he was at college in New York, he just walked out before, before he finished his final, um, examination because he was like well I've learned everything I need to do here now I don't need the piece of paper see you later and that's kind of the kind of 
he's so he's got an arrogance to him for sure but yeah the the things that i wanted like that there's that really so things that aren't really correct aren't things that don't make him look cool are obviously his ties which are quite sort of overt in not particularly nice ways and also that peachy shirt that he wears which i'm really kind of happy with because it's sort of it's just off enough you know it's quite period like the cut we made though so we made all of his shirts and we also not all of his shirts most of his shirts we made and like i said we made that gray suit that he wears the majority of the time and sort of the details on those are of quite very correct i'd say you know the shape is it's almost like a slight spear point in the collar of the peachy shirt and there's an, another couple of the colors that we did of it which had the same collar shape and it's it's quite specific to like late 80s um shirts and you can't really buy it now either which is why we had to make them but um and you know on his suit the details of his lapel you know it's, it's he's got, got quite a wide lapel and um the notch is dropped a bit which again is sort of correct in that time it's sort of throughout I can talk about suit details forever but it's like you know they sort of notches go up and down and then sometimes they go peak and there's there's various sort of points throughout history where these where these uh, where they change and are a certain thing and the fact that that notch is slightly lower than it should be really kind of says late 80s kind of on the nose and he's got a, he's, he's got pleats in his trousers as well as well which pretty much the rest of everybody else i don't think doesn't have no one else has a pleat pleat in their trouser at all and a sort of fuller fuller leg everyone else is still in kind of more like a in the earlier 80s you'd have more like a flat front and like kevin maxwell and well, both the maxwells in fact robert and kevin maxwell both have a flat fronted trouser i think oh, actually no we did maybe we did put a pleat in in robert's I can't remember now, but he might have a pleat in there just to give him a bit more room in his leg. Because obviously he was wearing a lot of um, a lot of fat padding to pad his legs out, so he might have needed that pleat just to give a bit more uh, room in his legs. There was another thing that I wanted to pull a thread on, but I will ask that after the next because it was about the costume authenticity and oh. uh, being be kind of I'm kind of jumping here a little bit, but it was just because as a period film you've already mentioned that you wanted to make them as accurate as you want yeah. um, during that time. But do you ever think as well, when you look as a costume designer, you're looking at some of these clothes and you kind of think, wow, that just looks slightly awful. If you Did you ever just want to sort of tweak that design just a little bit so that you're like, actually, that makes it a little bit cooler or you can add your own little signature touch to it? No, I think what I'm mostly looking for is something that's awful. That, that something that's not you know something that we're not really used to seeing today that's what i'm generally looking for i want to find those those bits that aren't part of modern day clothing experience if you like like i i i, I think you can make an argument that you know the suits that hank wears like nobody's wearing suits like that right now and i don't think and i think it's good that they aren't <laughs> but i also think it's good that he is wearing it in this film because it's correct to that time and I, I don't know I want I want to show people things that they haven't necessarily seen maybe except if they're watching you know a, a bang on period for you know a film from 1988 or something I'm looking yeah I'm looking for those little touches that will make it true to that time 
but also true to the character obviously as well because like i was saying about his suits previously it's like you know i wanted his suits to be lightweight because he's coming from tokyo and stuff and in theory you know even though some of those suits are arm are armani it's like he probably would have a tailor in tokyo who was making his suits at that time uh, he'd not necessarily be buying them off the peg so all that sort of information any any information that i can put in to show the history of the character and his ties as well because there's a lot of his ties like we were saying they're, they're quite bright and you know sort of these abstract patterns they felt quite american to me so and because he, he's like a mix of a lot of different because his mum was indonesian and his dad was dutch um and i think anything that I can know about him that I can try and use to help visually help that come across, I'll, I'll try and use. So I'm kind of looking for anything odd, I suppose. That's what I'm trying to do. And I don't, I don't think on this, I've really made anything seek to make anything cooler maybe than it was. I mean, obviously it is the type of film that it is so there is that kind of spy element and stuff so it is pushed i'm not saying that it's all absolutely because you know real kgb operatives in that time there's lots of there was lots of, actually there's lots of interesting conversations i even had about that to be fair that it was kind of like you know the kg operatives who operated in you know overseas would have all the nicest clothes and they wouldn't look like poor <laughs> they wouldn't look like poor people who'd come from russia you know what i mean obviously because they need to fit in in the environment that they're in but they would they would have all the best all the nicest clothes from all the nicest tailors because they'd be um you know they were being sponsored by the state to fit in so they'd they'd make make use of i suppose that and also they'd make use of the fact that they were they could get all the best stuff and the best clothes and look the nicest and nicest watches and stuff because they had to, but then there's this sort of switch, I think, where they almost begin to start buying into that even, you know? So it's like, yeah, I was kind of using that conversations that I've had with various people in, in Valentin's costume, because like, and obviously because his character is out for himself as well. He's not out for, he's, you know, he's not, he's not kind of like, um, he's not for his country like Belikov is, Belikov wants to make the best deal for his country because he is like a true, true communist, you know. But Valentin is very much seeing that, you know, communism, communism is about to fail. And he's like, right, what can I get out of this? So the way that I dressed him, you know, was was quite, was more Western in terms of, you know, the overcoat he's wearing with a velvet collar and stuff. You know, I liked seeing that difference in him um, and just making him quite slick, and I suppose a bit James Bondy in a way, because it's kind of it's, it kind of goes to those places. So it's it's the reality of what you can find, the information you can find out, plus the type of film that you think that you're making to to produce a costume with with somebody like Valentin as well, or even people outside of Russia when they're sort of buying into that capitalistic mindset rather than communism. And I think the best I think the best example of that is you mentioned it earlier when Hank has his jeans stolen and they say mm. thank you for the Levi's. And then the fact is that they're stealing a pair of jeans off him. And it's just it's like that sort of image and idea as well. It's like you can kind of see that they are out for themselves and they're sort of 
turning their back on what the fundamentals of the government is. Yeah, and uh, you know, with with that jeans, with that jeans um, theft, as it were, as well, we were kind of um, um, we made sure that we didn't use jeans on anybody, any characters. We didn't use jeans on the only jeans that we used was when we went to you know went to the party, sort of with the sort of more in the inverted commas forward-thinking people. Um, you know, when he goes, he goes to Hank goes to the party with um with Alexi and there's kind of more kind of revolutionary type people and stuff there. So they were wearing jeans, but none of them were like Wrangler or Levi or any of that sort of stuff. They were kind of like cheap versions of, of those and snow washes and stuff like that, because yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't get that American product in Russia without really trying. And I think if you were wearing them around, then you were really making a political statement by wearing them, especially if you're a Russian person. Yeah, exactly. And just interesting to sort of even something so simple as jeans can create such a big stern hoo-ha with people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But um I guess that's that that is the times that it was. I mean, all I can all I can do is is research. I can't obviously I have no first hand experience of it apart from, you know, the a few conversations that I've, you know, had with my wife about how things were and how difficult it was getting certain things in Slovakia, but as, as we know, as I was saying, that's not direct. It's just sort of under the same kind of regime, but it's not exactly the same. But it's it's good to get some kind of social view of um, what it was like living under those in in that environment. Yeah, exactly. And just like crazy to think of those times. It just sort of because we started talking about kind of palettes a little bit earlier and this kind of ties in with another one of my questions is the uh, collaboration process with other departments i saw an interview on youtube where you talked about your collaboration with daniel taylor the production designer where you kind of spoke about color palettes between locations um and how you kind of wanted to dis- how the color palettes at those locations were kind of had to be quite distinct to show how different each area was so that and i guess not just audience members can differentiate where they are but also it's the sort of storytelling elements of just what people's lives are like as well and how this world is lived in yeah um like how do these conversations decisions affect your creative and design process do you talk about do you suggest color palettes to to dan for example or is it a case that he's kind of the front runner with these ideas and then you build these you kind of design the costumes and looks around it traditionally like production designers come on a bit before costume designers do so dan had been working on it prior to you know me becoming involved with the project and so he had got you know like quite a wealth of research that he'd already built up before i started but like it was kind of nice because the you know pretty much i think it was like the first conversation that we had together and we started talking about color palettes etc and as you're saying sort of differentiating between all the different countries just to again try and help the viewer in knowing where we are at this at whatever point because it does the film does hop around so much from continent to continent that you're kind of it it, it could be confusing if you didn't try to give them a sort of uh, a map I suppose to to work with to go go but well this is I know that this is you know this color way is associated with Russia or this way is America and just all those things, anything you can do to help, really. That's 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 generally 
what I'd say our job is is like anything I do to help the actor, to help the director, help the story. That's that's what you're doing is just help trying to help all the time. And so yeah, when when we first started talking about the colors, we we both were pretty much on the same page straight straight from the for, from the first meeting really. And then I I don't know. We did talk about stuff when we were going. We were talking about things as we were going along, like colors of cars and the color of the taxi and Alexi's car and all these things. But there's there's some parts that you you can't really control because you know some of it you can you can control it as much as you can. But there's certain parts when you you know whatever you get into continuity from a day or something, and so you can't always have the perfect match, I suppose, between like. Uh, an environment and a costume especially with us where we're traveling across continents and stuff sort of constantly but you, you can try and um and also when alvin alwyn kukler who was the dop as well he came when when i got up to scotland because i started pre-prep in in london and then went up to scotland after that and that was the first time i met him was was not far out from shooting but we'd sort of been talking we were talking a lot about sort of differences that we'd noticed in photographs that we've been looking at so you know a lot of the russian photographs i've been looking at i mean it's interesting actually because it is you know when you're saying when you were asking earlier about you know did 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 we sort of stylize things or try and make things better than they were in the 80s i suppose yes actually I'm, i wouldn't i wasn't entirely truthful because it's like the 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 russian for instance the russian people you know, they don't necessarily look quite as bedraggled as maybe they're portrayed in the film because, you know, with the research I was doing, uh, lots of the research I looked at, and to be fair, you you probably, if I put a picture from Moscow in 1988 next to a picture from from certain parts of England in, in 1988, you probably wouldn't really be able to see that much difference, actually. Because the fashion side of it is not that pushed. We did push it backwards a little, I suppose, in terms of period. And also, you know, obviously the the, the colour palette of it is pushed as well. Because even though Russia seems like a grey place in the 1980s, and it, it probably was to some degree, it's it's not as extreme as the sort of case made in the film. So the, the, this cause, because the film is a film and, and reality is reality. So, so yeah, the differences me and um, Alwyn were looking at was uh, I'd, I'd sort of noticed that a lot of the Russian photographs I was looking at were, you know, the colours were more subdued, but there was always these really quite bright, bright pops of red, which I thought was kind of funny because obviously that's the that's the communist colour of the day and the colour of the Russian flag. So I was talking to Alvin about that and he was kind of like, yeah, that's that's a really interesting detail. And, you know, we got a bit of that in there with, Alexi's kids uh, have got kind of um, have, the, have this pioneers uniform, which features a red scarf, and there's a, there's also a kind of um, a little jacket underneath their clothes, which you don't really get to see. They, there was a scene that got cut, I think, where you you did see this um this uh, this jacket, but there's um, there's sort of it's kind of like the scouts for for communists, essentially, is the best way of describing it. But um, if you were quite nationalistic and you wanted to just display that then you could wear that to school etc and so I thought that was kind of like an interesting 
way of Alexi trying to draw attention away from the fact that he was um, maybe less, maybe less wanting to be governed by the state than than having ideas of his own and stuff that he was kind of diverting that attention away from himself by, by his kids kind of wearing sort of a slightly nationalistic item of clothing. And also, as we, as I was saying previously, the sort of the the red pop that it gives quite nicely. It's interesting to hear when you, you have that collaboration with different departments and how, because each person's start date is different, you're kind of at different uh, processes of design or stages of design, should I say, and where you're sort of going from from there. You're right in terms of, obviously, like with films, Russia will be made to look quite more dreary and sad and grey and whatnot. But if you actually look at sort of like Moscow, where they have, I'm not sure what the, what it is, but they have those sort of multicoloured buildings. Sure. I don't know if it's there. I, I'm not sure what it is. I, I'm <clears> sure somebody will be screaming at me saying it's this, it's this. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. And I just think it's, again, I guess you just need to sort of show that uh, juxtaposition of different places and how different times but i guess as well in terms of how weather will affect the look of things so you know if it's quite cold dreary and snowy it will make things look a lot sort of sadder should we say yeah and i mean you know all of this all of this was shot in glasgow like the entire film was shot in glasgow so you know dan taylor who's a production designer really you know, did such an amazing job because again, there's sort of there's a few scenes that were cut that were um some exteriors of uh, Hank's Hank's kids' school, which we did in like February in Glasgow with all these poor children and uh, their mums in uh, very summery looking clothing. But you know, you wouldn't have known. You really wouldn't have known that it was shot in Glasgow. It was it was really quite quite amazing and. So yeah, I mean, making things look sad was wasn't particularly hard. Should we say in Glasgow because obviously there's a, there's a lot of really beautiful brutalist buildings of which I'm a massive fan of. To be fair, and uh, Aberdeen as well, which was which also had some fantastic buildings like the Elor buildings in uh, in Aberdeen. And the so yeah, I suppose Dan's biggest well many many of Dan's challenges were the bits were, that weren't like Tokyo and Las Vegas. And so <clears throat> obviously Las Vegas wasn't so tricky because that's an interior. So we could kind of amp that up with lots of color and stuff um, and just go a bit mad with it. The stuff uh, the the Tokyo stuff was interesting because it's like all of the Tokyo stuff, I think now is pretty much just all in Hank's apartment and bulletproof software. So all you see really is interiors. And I suppose in terms of the, look and feel of of Tokyo I was thinking it was lighter and brighter if you know what I mean but whereas obviously a lot of that is um governed by in sort of slightly dingy interior lights and a lot of um the stuff in Hank's apartment is at night time as well because it's, it's when they've got home from work or he's got home from a really late you know come getting in on red eye flight and all that sort of thing so it I suppose it didn't quite the Tokyo thing didn't quite translate as I thought it would, mainly because of because of the lighting states and stuff, and the, you know the fact that we never saw outside; we just saw the interiors. So my kind of bright, breezy version of Tokyo didn't really 
it was still quite oppressive. It felt quite oppressive in those interior scenes still, which is which is entirely fine because it, you know, there is a feeling of oppression through the film anyway, and and obviously um the pressure that Hank's under. So that's that's absolutely right. But I suppose in terms of what you're talking about working with other departments, that was sort of more surprising to me that it kind of wasn't quite how I had thought it would be. But and also I haven't talked about um, working with Jan, Jan Saul of makeup and hair designer as well and um because obviously that's massively integral and if anything you know our departments are kind of intrinsically linked through you know sort of a common purpose which is you know trying to make each character as sort of singular and and sort of striking as as they can be so obviously with jan i had well you know constantly in conversations with jan about all of the various different characters and i'd i'd because generally what happens is uh, uh the cost, costume will do the fitting first and then the hair and makeup will get to see them afterwards so i'd be like sending on my my fitting pictures and to her to say well it's it's kind of going this way i think and then like obviously when um jan had seen them as well then we we have a discussion with john and the director and and see if he agrees and if like those there were some things like with Belikov, for instance, it was like because he's such because he's such a handsome man and he sort of carries himself with such dignity. I kind of had to make his suits like not fit him very well, which he really wasn't very happy about because he made every suit I put on him. He just looked amazing in. And y- you kind of you did, we didn't want Belikov to look too amazing because it didn't seem correct that he would be involved he would give much thought to how he looked should we say and so yeah John was I think I did maybe three different things with Belikov to try and get him away from looking so amazing because <laughs> he, he literally like whatever you put on him he just looked great because he's just such a handsome charismatic man <laughs> You created a good segue to my next question because I wanted to talk about the prosthetics. But before we jump into that, it's funny how you're mentioning about trying to create those outfits for somebody like Belikov, where you're creating it like you wanted to make it a little bit sort of mismatch with the size, but then he just probably he just once he donned it, he just looked perfect, right? Yeah, I mean that. I think the darker suit that you wore is actually like a 1950s suit, which is nuts. I mean, it's stupid, really, to put him in a 1950s suit. But it, I mean, it wasn't overtly 1950s, should we say? But it just the way because it was a heavier material as well, which kind of helped because it sort of made him look a bit portlier than he actually is. Because he's, you know, he's really, he's really fit, kind of older gentleman, and he, yeah, it just sort of helped that he looked less fitted on him it didn't feel right that his suit should fit him too correctly because you know his whole it seemed to me his idea his ideology was more like i am for the state and i'm trying to do you know i'm a good man absolutely but he completely believes in communism as a concept and that's doesn't seem entirely um compatible with making yourself look attractive at the same time but someone might tell me that I'm wrong for thinking that but it, it, at the time that seemed like the right way to go with him mm. just to sort of go back to 
talking about the collaboration with the hair and makeup design because mm. there is a very distinct use of prosthetics in the film, especially for somebody like Rob Maxwell and also Gorbachev. Does your design process uh, get affected by the use of prosthetics? And then what's the what is the design process like for when it comes to prosthetics? Because, for example, like when it comes to certain fabrics, can you use? Are there certain fabrics you can't use because it might damage your prosthetics? Um, and and as well, you're saying about how fittings usually it's costume that go first, and then it's hair and makeup. Was it the other way around for something like this? The other way around, it was all very, very, very rushed because, you know, as I said previously, the whole thing was being done through full lockdown. So it's like we couldn't get in. I had to have like a special letter from the production company to like even get on the train to come from Glasgow to London because Mark Coulier, who was sort of doing the prosthetics uh, with, with Jan, obviously, because Jan's still involved with the process. It's not just Mark Coulier taking it on. So it's like a... It, the, the whole thing is a collaboration between Jan, the makeup and hair designer, Mark Coulier, the prosthetics designer, me, John, the director, and the producers sometimes as well. And so, yeah, we couldn't, we didn't, we didn't really have enough fittings, to be fair, to that we, you know, as many fittings as we'd normally have for something as complex as this. So what was happening was, and I think Roger was cast sort of quite late as well because it sort of, he, yeah, I seem to remember he was he was meant to be cast and then it didn't happen and then we were like, we really need him because we really need to start making for him, you know, because it's a big whole process. And so he was quite, cast quite late. So Mark, and obviously a lot of this is, was, there was a budgetary uh, restrictions on this as well because it's not the, the biggest budget. I mean, it's not the biggest budget film in the world. I mean, I don't know how it comes across as a film, but it um it wasn't a massive budgeted film. And so what happened was Mark had a body padding that he'd previously used on another film, which when we got Roger, so the first thing we did was I took Roger, well, me and Jan took Roger to Mark's Mark's workshop and we tried this padding on him to see what it looked like on him. And then I tried to, I can't remember where I tried to find the research, find the researcher. I think we'd looked, we'd looked at loads of pictures, obviously. And Mark had a load of pictures. I had a load of pictures. Jan had a load of pictures. And then we, we got together, we, you know, with, with Roger and we were sort of all discussing the different parts of his anatomy, as it were, and the sort of, very specific body shape he had and how we could achieve it and and outside of that mark was obviously doing these mark i think i think so mark does a scan mark did a scan of roger like a full body scan of roger and then i don't know how he because obviously the prosthetic side of it is not really my thing but on in terms of the, the facial prosthetics anyway so the, the facial prosthetics i think it gets i don't know if he does it on a 3d on a computer or, or how they does it now because i know that he still does a lot of stuff by hand um sculpting but anyway so he was doing that as a, as a separate process he was working obviously on robert maxwell's face and i was mostly focused on his body shape more than his his head obviously but um so we did one fitting and i think i brought so we put that on him and i brought some suits that were quite big to see you know how thing how suits draped over the body padding that Mark already had, and just to get a gauge because we, you know again any sort of shortcuts you try and you try and work with because we didn't have a lot of time and it's like if I could 
put a jacket on him and go, oh, well, that nearly fits him. Bloody, bloody, blood, and that's quite good. It's helpful. But uh, so we had that first fitting, and then we really just tried the body padding on him with a few bits of clothes to see what happened. And then we went away. And then I think the second fitting, yeah, the second fitting I couldn't be at because I was already up in Scotland prepping. So um, L, my assistant designer, had to do it. And I had to look at it on Zoom, which is virtually impossible um, to sort of get an idea of someone's size because you can't really, you can sort of abstractly say, I can abstractly say, oh, I think this person's about a 48 inch chest, say, right? But that doesn't really mean anything until you're standing next to that person and seeing how big they come across. Because Robert Maxwell was a big guy, do you know what I mean? He was tall as well as 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 well as large. And so what we sort of guesstimated how big I thought his chest should be and how big we thought his waist should be. And then, like I said, L did this, did this fitting without me, where I just looked at it in on Zoom. And I think they started looking at some of the facial prosthetics as well. And then so because of and then after that fitting, we took measurements from that padding to start making his actual suits because we literally had to make start making the suits and shirts because otherwise there wouldn't have been enough time to make them. It's, you know, because making a suit is is not the shortest process either, let alone making a body padding with a suit to go over the top of it. So we'd sourced some sort of dead stock suiting for the lighter blue suit that he works, uh, that he wears. And then with the brighter blue one, again, it was like a, it was a, it was a tough decision that, that suiting because what I was trying to do, we'd done, so in the interim period, I, we'd done some screen tests with Alvin up here uh, in, in Glasgow, where I'd sort of seen how much, particularly the grade in Russia really kind of killed a lot of colors. And so there was a, there was a purple overcoat that we'd made for Hank, which was really nice in real life. But actually, when you put it on screen with the grade that Alvin was going to do, it just became grey. So it was entirely pointless. So that was one of the things that got cancelled sort of after the after we'd done that camera test. But so so because I knew that it was killing a lot of the brighter colours, I decided that I'd need to use instead of using like you would normally just kind of use a navy pinstripe you know a classic navy pinstripe on a character like him but if i did that i knew it would just almost go black because again like um his son kevin maxwell is wearing sometimes in some of the shots wearing like a navy pinstripe suit and you can't even see the pinstripe in it just because the grade is so extreme so we went with this brighter blue color which I think works. Ideally, I would have liked it to have been slightly less bright because it is a bit punchy. But I don't kind of mind it either because he's a big extravagant character as well. So it kind of works. But yeah, it was... So we were looking at the different weights of material. You know, like I was saying, Belikov, you know, the heavier weight um, cloth of his suit sort of helped to make him seem heavier than he was. It's kind of like you can't use lighter weight suitings on someone who is large because it just doesn't help and it also it particularly doesn't help when you've got um you know a fake body padding underneath it because it sort of it just doesn't sit well it doesn't sit well it doesn't help make them appear heavy you know 
So we chosen both those fabrics and Academy, uh, Adrian at Academy Costumes has started making these suits based on the sizes that we taken off the, um, the body suit on the second fitting. And then, so I was, and Ella had taken a load of photographs as well. So I was showing those photographs to John and John was like, well, we have to get Roger up to Glasgow because I just can't, I can't see it. I can't see how big he is or da da da, which was entirely fair. But um, it was, and it, the reason that we weren't bringing Roger up to Glasgow was because of, you know, COVID restrictions and stuff mainly, but um, they managed to make it happen and we got him up and then, which was invaluable to be honest. And I'm really glad that John said that at that point, because it, um, when he got up and we put the bodysuit onto him, you could, we could kind of instantly see what all the problems were that we couldn't see when we weren't there, you know, because <laughs> we couldn't physically be there. Uh, which of the main problems were bit were that his his chest he's very barrelly when you look at real pictures of him he's really barrelly like his his the top of his chest is unnaturally high it's like most people when they put quite a lot of weight on they tend to put it on their stomach and it sort of they kind of they become they become more sort of they're thinner at, along their shoulders and they just go out wider as their stomach sort of gets larger but he has got this kind of like giant proud chest on him which is something that we changed when he came up to to be fitted in glasgow so we changed that and also the back of his neck that was looking a little bit walrus like which again he he wasn't like robert maxwell wasn't he wasn't kind of stooped in any way from his weight he was just he was very upright looking and we took some more padding off of his shoulders as well because he he wasn't very wide at the top, but he just, he, yeah, it was just this giant sort of proud chest and, and stomach. And then we added in, oh yeah, we also, yeah, we added in a, a section as well around his stomach where that was a bit softer padding than the rest of it. So that um, his trousers, where his trousers sit, his trousers sit very high on his body. The trousers actually sort of sat into this groove that we'd almost made around around the padding so it went in and sort of grasped on like it would grasp onto your actual body if you were that large, you know, because obviously there's some give there. And with padding, there's not some, not necessarily so much give. So we sort of engineered that in there as well. And then he went away again. And then we had to, so we'd started making the suits at that point. And then because of the changes that we'd made to his body padding, the suits didn't fit in the right way because they weren't hanging in the right way because obviously the body shape had changed. So poor old Adrian. And this was like, this was, I think it was just before Christmas. So during sort of the Christmas period, because he was starting work after Christmas, poor old Adrian had to sort of re-cut all these suits and his overcoat as well, actually, that he wore, that he wears to, um, to Moscow. Recut them all to fit this new body shape which was a lot of work and in not much time and you know he really pulled it off he really it's amazing really what what they managed to do for us and so yeah so it was i think it was like four 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 fittings that overall that we had which seems a lot but it really it was just about enough and i think you know i'm really proud of the way that he's he's ended up looking like and it you know it was really great and all you know all of those all of those padding 
problems you know we dealt with Mark Coulier's Mark Coulier's team dealt with that and you know obviously Jam was there as well when we were having all these discussions of like well no he needs to be more like this and like I said John was there on that fitting when we came to Glasgow and he was like no it's not quite right there and so it, it, it was a whole group effort to to make that character and you know and what Mark Coulier did, did on his face was just incredible as well and his hair and everything he's he's quite an unnatural looking human being anyway and to produce to make Roger just become him was was quite remarkable and scary because you know I think I've said it before that you know I, was, I, I we'd got him dressed and I hadn't seen him and I walked into the the fitting room and he was sort of there without his jacket on but and he just looked real and but then Roger would speak with his normal voice when he wasn't acting and it'd be like why is Roger's voice coming out of that strange man's face it's really peculiar and yeah I, I, it was it, really happy with how he turned out I think his body shape is is really true to the body shape of Robert Maxwell as well and I think he I think he even I think he yeah you know he did he did he did do hand sections for him as well so he had sort of hand pat and like hand prosthetics as well to make his hands fatter so yeah I mean you know a privilege to work with someone like Mark Coulier and Jan as well. I mean, I've known Jan for quite a long time anyway, but um, it was it was really lovely to work with both of them. They were both incredible people. I think it's quite interesting to hear the sort of how much needs to go in for just one actor and the fact is that they're having numerous fittings um, around what they're doing and how many alterations need to be made on suits and what kind of style that they'll need to wear. But then also when you're saying about having a lighter suit in terms of weight for them will affect like how the, how the design is. Also, it's just quite funny as well when you're saying about hearing the actor's voice whilst he's still in the prosthetic makeup, not Robert Maxwell's. It always sort of kind of, it's quite jarring, but funny as well to hear. And it's probably quite funny to see as well. Yeah. No, it was, it was really amazing when he when he first walked out for his screen test. Everybody was just like, "Oh my god, that's like nuts!" And I think, I think it was yeah. I think John had got sent a sent a picture to um, Matthew Vaughan saying, "You know, here's Roger," and um, Matthew Vaughan shown it to somebody who knew Robert Maxwell, and they were just like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that he he just looks exactly like him. That's insane." So you know that's that's pretty. You can't get much better than that. Someone who knew the actual person saying that he looks exactly like him. That's that's pretty good. Pretty good. And there's also there was lots of little other funny quirks with him that were. I didn't. I mean, I'm not saying this is necessarily the truth, but every picture that I looked at of Robert Maxwell, he never wore a watch. So there's because there's a lot of watch. There's, I do a lot of watch work <laughs> as well in this watches and suits. And so I was going kind of like, oh. We don't need to get a watch for him. That's that's kind of weird, but but fine. He didn't wear a watch, and then yeah, and also John really wanted him to wear braces, and he does wear braces in the film, and he uh, and I think it was the right decision. But as, again, as far as I could see, Robert Maxwell never wore a pair of braces, which is surprising considering you'd imagine his trousers might fall down with that kind of body shape that he had. But yeah, they look. He looks good in braces. It's a good, and it's a good eighties nod, obviously. And oh, and there's the, yeah, and also he's got that little monogram on his shirt as well. So again, in when we were when I was looking at the research, and I think probably when we were discussing his body shape and just trying to find as many pictures of him without a jacket on as possible, I noticed that he had this little monogram on his shirt 
so we we've got that on there as well so that's quite nice but just r r m in a little tri- uh, little uh diamond shape embroidered on his like a lot of uh sort of rich men would do in that period you know have that little monogram somewhere on their shirts so that uh, when they went to dry cleaning they could tell which ones they were although i'm sure they'd know which ones were rubble maxwell's shirts because they're absolutely about 15 times bigger than everybody else's yeah exactly and um i do like the braces image that sort of feel it has that if you think about it as well as like very iconic 80s image of that with the braces and the suit and that sort of wall street feel of it all yeah, well, yeah, and I really liked because we because we really went to Braces Town with with Kevin Maxwell because they, I had seen pictures of Kevin Maxwell with with braces and it was funny because Anthony got really attached to the braces because I, I don't know if he'd not worn braces before or something but he was really into them and like he even wanted to borrow he went away he went away for the weekend at some point he's like can I take some braces with me I was like yeah if you want to but I don't know why I'm saying braces but he was like. I just really like them. They're good. And, um, but yeah, it was a nice touch. You know, I like those little touches between father and son. If that Robert Maxwell's got the, the really nice braces with the, um, you know, with the button on braces and Kevin's are just a little bit more rubbish. And I, well, not, not rubbish because it's entirely fine for them to be clip on in that period. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not quite as elevated as having a button on brace, you know, button on braces, like proper money. And then it's like a clip on braces. just like sort of a cheap alternative. And I sort of quite like that. I put him in the clip braces rather than button braces. And also, you know, that, the, again, the sort of synergy between, you know, Robert wearing the pinstripe and his son wearing the pinstripe as well. And, him trying to emulate his father that's that's kind of nice stuff yeah and it feels like, like sort of mini me trying to be dad yeah. and he can't prefer, you know get out of his shadow that sort of big shadow of his it's, it's a big shadow <laughs> just anthony anthony was so phenomenal as that, that character as well and also talking of weird voices it was like anthony is from i'm gonna say the wrong one now i think he's northern irish Maybe he's Irish. He's going to hate me if I get the wrong one. He's Irish or Northern Irish, and I apologise, Anthony, for not knowing which one it is. But that's mainly because he didn't, throughout the entire filming, he didn't talk in his in, his, in his actual accent. He talked it the way that he talks in the film. And so when he started talking on the like the last day, I think, that we shot with him, and he started talking in his normal accent, I was like, what's going on? And so all these, all these actors, it's just mental. It's like, I don't even know where he's from anymore. I still don't know where he's from. You got it right. It is Northern Irish. It is Northern. Okay. Apologies. You're a proud Northern Irish man, Anthony, and I love you. Just to sort of get to the penultimate question, what was your favourite costume to design? I don't know. Have I talked enough about Taryn's costume? This is the thing. Because I feel like I should talk more about Taryn's costume. But um, in truth... So for, before I fit, before I finish, before I actually talk about what my favourite costume is, I just want to say the other things about Taryn's costume that are kind of funny. So, like, Taryn, like Taryn's watch, which again, nobody probably even sees his digital watch, but these are the levels of weird things that I that we think about or talk about or do. So Taryn's watch, because of this, I was, I was watching quite a lot of. I, I started watching some 
like period James Bond films just out of interest, just to see how, you know, they portrayed the KGB or the baddies or or even like what the uniforms look like, if they'd done the correct uniforms or they'd done incorrect uniforms for various reasons. And then I was kind of like getting really into all this watch research, like I was saying to you previously about like all the different watches that people wear. And then I was like researching all the different types of watches that James Bond had worn. And I know because I really wanted a digital watch, obviously, because he because it's the 80s and he's coming from Japan, like the land of the digital watch. And then I, so I came across this one that um, Roger Moore wears in Octopussy, which is like 1983. And so the one that Hank actually wears is the same watch that, um, that James Bond wears in Octopussy. Just because, just because I thought it was quite funny that, you know, again, nobody's going to know, but now they will know because I've said it. But um, I thought it was a funny detail that, you know, he'd that Hank might kind of identify with that sort of slickness of, uh, of Roger Moore and that sort of charming aspect of him. Because, you know, Hank is a really is a really charming character, as well as, you know, being very uh, business minded and as well as being he's a very complicated character, Hank. Anyway, so. That that's the only thing I was sort of extra thing that I wanted to say about him because I think I've talked about his suits and his boots and all the rest of it enough. But um, my intrigue for my favorite costume that character that we were des- designing was Robert Stein, and it's really hard to say why. And most people are like, why do you like Robert Stein? That's so weird. Uh, I think it's mainly because he's he's one of the characters that we knew the least about in a way. And there's had the least amount of research on. So I think I'd had like two, I found two references of him, I think, which were from documentaries on, on YouTube or whatever. Uh, one of them, which is at the end of the film, actually, there's the, the part of that is the bit where he, I think he's in a, in the back of a cab or something at the end of the film when they sort of say Robert Stein, blah, blah, blah. And just say, you know, the bit at the end where they say what happened to the various people who were involved in the uh, story. And it, you know, he doesn't really, he wasn't the most interesting guy to to look at and because as i've already said there's a lot of men in a lot of different types of suits in this film i kind of wanted to lean into the fact that he you know that he's a hungarian he's a you know because he's 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 of hungarian heritage and then he moved to london and then um became guy who went out to eastern europe to try and find cheap games to license that um because you know they they didn't realize the uh realized the value of video games yet in um in eastern europe and obviously because he was hungarian he could speak um various languages and he could just go and sort of i wouldn't say con these people out of their software but you know he could just say oh, i've got contacts i can get this made and then they'd sell it sell the rights to him for not very much and he'd make a killing when he got back to um in england because the video game industry in that in that time was was really like the wild west you know like the sort of for a point of reference just kind of like the when the dot-com boom was going off you know sort of more recently it was like kind of anything goes as as it is in the film you know sort of people fighting over sort of properties that's i, I kind of liked so i wanted to lean into the hungarian angle a little and the fact that he's an older guy seemingly in a sort of in quite a young market almost you know because the video game uh the video game industry or the video game, the people who were playing video games are obviously young people, but he's like a, this older guy. He probably doesn't even know how a computer works, really. And um, I just had a lot of fun with the glasses and the funny little hat. 
and he just again it was just that it was a kind of a pleasure to create another man in a suit but with his own little intricacies so again he's he's like a character who's really trying to appear bigger than he is should we say so his suit it was also made because obviously because toby jones is, is quite a quite a small man um and it's quite difficult to find suits off the peg that fit him especially period suits so he made his one of his suits as well which is the suit that he wears most of the way through but it's um so we made a three-piece suit for him uh which is kind of based off a, a 19 late 1970s kind of silhouette so sort of backdating his clothes a bit as, as well because he wouldn't have bothered to get a suit that was up to date for the 1980s or anything because he's you know he just needs to look smart so you know his trousers are a little bit more straight cut and he's got three button fastening i think slightly larger lapel and the waistcoat as well which was nice because i don't think anybody else i don't think anybody else wore three piece in the no nobody else wore a three piece in the end and just uh yeah just to imbue his character with a slightly different feel and those massive tweed overcoats that we got in which were fantastic as well and the other the one when he has to fight when he has to fight with um kevin maxwell as well with that funny little gray overcoat as well that's just really tightly fitted on him and you know it was it was really nice for me and his yeah and his in his tie and his shirts and his tie so he's kind of got like 1970s ties that were quite pronounced i suppose like he's they've got kind of paisley patterns on the stuff and they're quite quite beautiful ties actually but i feel like you know he he wouldn't put his money in his suit but he would buy a tie that's a bit more like i'm a proud businessman and his um you know his shirt his shirts have got you know the uh, white collar and um candy stripes because again it's kind of like it's kind of business orientated and they're they're a bit more up to date i suppose they're a bit more 1980s so it's kind of like he's an amalgam of different periods sort of smashed together on one person and um you know toby was like really lovely and when when i finally fit because again the first fitting first fitting that we did with him i couldn't be there because i had to be in glasgow and i wasn't allowed to come back um and he was he's based in london so again one of uh, rosie one of my other assistants she actually we pulled out a load of suits before i left and she tried um some suits on him and then we got them measured and then Angel's Costumes made his um, suits uh, very beautifully. And um, so he was measured and we ch- I'd chosen a, f- a material before I left as well. And just kind of, and then I had a sort of Zoom conversation with Toby and said, oh, you know, this is the material that we're thinking to make your suit out of, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, he was very kind in the, because you, you don't really ever want to be in a situation with an actor where you're kind of saying, this is a fait accompli. And so, you know, because that's not giving them any room to manoeuvre or to bring some of their own ideas, which which might be fantastic and you should always be open to them. But we were so tight on time that I was really kind of hoping that he'd kind of go along with what what we planned because it was just going to be really, really difficult to do anything other than that, because like I said, the, the whole reality of the pandemic and even being able to source fabrics was you know all the shops were shut all the shops in glasgow were shut we couldn't buy anything in glasgow at all i had to get to phone fabric shop stores in um in london to to get them to open up well not even open up really it was it was really because they weren't allowed to be open so they kind of had to let me in 
and then walk away a long way away. And obviously we're all wearing face masks all the time. And then I'd have to sort of say, oh, this one and this one and this one. And then we'd get them sent on later. But they were actually, I think it was actually illegal. I don't think they're actually supposed to be at the time. So I won't say which fabric shops. But thank you, because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to make the film. And yeah, but so for, fortunately, Toby was really open about everything. He was kind of like, oh, I'll do I'll do what I do. You do what you do sort of thing. And then when we had the final fitting with him when he came up to Glasgow, he was just kind of like, well, you know, I don't really, I don't really need to do any acting now, do I? <laughs> Which I don't know if that's a diss or if that's a, a compliment, but he did do lots of acting, thankfully. And some of my favourite acting in the film, like, you know, when him and uh, him and Kevin Maxwell are having that, um, having that sort of powwow in his office and Kevin just knocks the thing off his desk as he walks out. That's like the funniest thing I've ever seen. And <laughs> And, and Robert Stein just eating his Chinese noodles or whatever. But yeah, it was great. And I loved I loved what what Toby did with it. And I loved what we did with it. And it was, yeah, I was really happy with that costume. I was really happy with lots of other costumes as well. But I just I have a, an affinity with Robert Stein. I don't know why. I think Robert Stein is a very left field choice. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it, you're right. If you think about it, is that he's... I think what you don't realise is when you read more up about him is that he's probably the secret alpha male out of all of them in yeah. terms of uh, he's the one going out there to do the deals. He may have uh, Mirosoft behind him as like a financial backing, for example, but he's the guy who's there finding, you know, he's he's the guy on the floor finding out yeah. what's going, what's what, what's perfect, what's good, what he should get. And the fact is that he has the fight with the Maxwells where you kind of see his full power in full flow there. And that's actually like, you see him come alive and whatnot. Yeah. And... I mean, yeah, I suppose that's what I was meaning to say about with his shirts and ties and stuff. Like he's trying to punch up to where the, where Robert Maxwell is, you know, but he, so he's trying to sort of visually show that he's worthy, if you like, rather than being too shrew like, because I don't think he is. It, well, definitely not the way Toby's, portrayed him anyway he's not shrewd like as you say he's like he is powerful and he's clever as well you know he's found this whole market and how to exploit it essentially and you know for a guy who an older guy as well who like I said doesn't probably have much interest in computing whatsoever it's um he's he's a force <laughs> yeah exactly crazy to think just to wrap up this episode I do have one last question what would you say was an important video game that shaped your life when you were growing up? There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot, but a lot of uh, a lot of ones that are you know not not so recent, should we say? Because you know, I think I've said it before as well. I was like, I was you know, I bought all of these video all these video consoles as they came out, like as a teenager slash younger person. But yeah, so like, I had them all. Like we started with like, well, actually, we, even before consoles, like we had ZX Spectrums, and we sort of started doing coding and that. Me and my brother, but that didn't really ever pursue that much further because it's like really hard work coding. So yeah, well, then when all the consoles started coming out, we had like a Mega Drive, then we had a SNES. I had them all, man. I had like an Atari Lynx, gonna Game Gear, you know, Game Boy. What else? All of them. All of them. I had most of most of the sort of earlier consoles I had at some point. So so but yeah, in terms of games, like Super Mario 
World 2, I think that was the right one, wasn't it? On SNES. I think it's Super Mario 2 is on SNES. I think that we played that a lot. And then obviously Mario, original Mario Kart. And, you know, even to this day, you know, me and my kids, we we play Mario Kart a lot. I think Mario Kart might be, as um, as Hank says in the, in the film, the perfect game. Mario Kart is my perfect game, I think. But um, Street Fighter 2 as well. Love Street Fighter 2. Spent a whole lot of time on Street Fighter 2. And then Tekken. And then moving into when so like PlayStations came out and that, then Tony Hawk's Pro Skater was like pretty major as well because like I used to skateboard when I was younger and stuff, so it made me uh, made me long for my younger days. <laughs> but yeah, there's so many amazing games. I, lo- I love all of those ones. Yeah, you know, not so much when it, you get into like now with like you know when it all started going like Halo and stuff. Even Goldeneye was quite good on SNES as well, but. Um, when it all started getting a bit too immersive, I was like, I don't have time for that. I don't have time, especially now with like two children and a career and a wife and everything else. It's like, I don't have time to be saying I'm going to go to this nether world and destroy some zombies or something for five hours. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah, we just we just cop back to uh, to Mario Kart because it's a winner. Solid choice, solid choice. I'm going to mess up your name and I'm not going to do it deliberately. I've, I've been thinking about this the whole time. <laughs> Nat, thank you yeah. very much for joining me. Thank you for spending your time to talk about Tetris, which is now streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. Encourage everybody to see it. Um, thank you again for your time. Watch it. It's great. Everybody says so. And everybody can't be wrong, right? Exactly. I never argue with everybody. <laughs> thank you again. Um Thank you again. Uh, Take care and bye-bye. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.